Grace and peace to you, church. It's good to be back again in the book of Jude. Um, I promise you, I did not read Brandon's uh, Bible study notes. I'm going to attribute that and give glory to God that the Holy Spirit can take two independent minds focused on one holy word and say the same thing, but not in the same way. So um, a lot of what you heard in the Bible study this morning, I'm happy to say, will be what's in the sermon. So I love how the Holy Spirit puts that together. So we're in uh, the book of Jude, Revelation, hang a left. If you don't know where Jude is, a little book there in the, the back of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 19 this morning. And hopefully most of you have an outline. So um, I'll read the passage and then we'll pray. Jude 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come now to your holy word, a word about your son and the salvation he brings. We ask you now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would grant our minds understanding. You would grant our hearts to believe. And you would build us up this day, this holy day you've made for us to worship you in spirit and in truth, in the truth of your word. Help us now to do that with reverence and awe. Lord, I pray for the preacher. Help his mind and his heart in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many Christians commonly understand, again, the, the book of Jude as uh, denouncing false teachers. Uh, this is understandable because we just came out of a section, uh, really the lion's share of the book, dealing with uh, false teachers over and over and over again. Jude is dealing with false teachers. And so many Christians have viewed the book of Jude as really a, a negative letter, nothing really positive in there to give us instruction. How can we uh, walk away from such a lengthy section that we just came out of uh, without kind of a heavy sense of criticism of everything going on around us? Um, but we can't forget that the letter was not written to really expose false teachers as the main objective so much as it was written for us, the church, to know how to contend for the faith, how to, as Jude said, contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so the more considerable treatment of false teachers that we just left, um, it has to be understood to serve kind of a, a greater purpose of helping us respond to wicked seducers and really help those who are being seduced by them. So Jude comes to uh, the close of his main section of the letter by turning his readers back to think about some things. And there's really kind of three main overarching themes in the close of this letter. We're going to cover the first one this morning. The first, the first thing he wants us to do is to remember to remember the apostles' teaching. We see that in verses 17 to 19. But also as we carry on in, in future messages, God willing, 
He wants us to build one another up, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And then thirdly, uh, to reach out to those to, to those who are being seduced by false teachers. So that's kind of the overarching grand scheme of the close of the letter. But let's kind of laser beam in on verses 17 to 19 now, which is a call to remember, a call to remember. And so we're going to cover our text in three points. First, we're going to see we have to remember the apostles' predictions. Remember their predictions. You can see that very clearly in verse 17. Secondly, we're going to uh, have to remember that we are in the last times. So buckle up. We're going to get into some eschatology. And third, we need to remember to love the church. And I'm going to save the lion's share of that for the next time. But those are the three things we need to see in these verses. So um, we have to remember that remembrance is a, a large theme in the Bible. Combined in its Old and New Testament forms, it's mentioned almost 300 times in the Bible. Remembrance really did two central things for the people of God. It gave them identity and it formed their conduct. Remembering what God had done, remembering what he had said, gave them identity, and it formed their conduct. With identity, there was the formation of a community. And with identity, there was this continuity with the past. They weren't disconnecting themselves from the people that had gone before them. And with conduct, there was this uh, determination of an ethic for that community. Uh, remember, it shows up in some very critical places in the Bible. Uh, think about this. The first time remembrance appears, it's when God says, I will, I will remember my covenant with Noah, Genesis 8.1. He set his bow in the clouds to do that as a perpetual remembrance. The patriarchs are said to be remembered by God and their lives are spared. Genesis 19, God remembered Abraham and spared Lot in Sodom. And with the moral law, Given at Sinai, we are told to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. In uh, the recounting of salvation history, if you go through Deuteronomy, especially you read through the Psalms, you see over and over again this theme, you shall remember. If you read the Psalms, I'd encourage you just to go through there and underline. Every time you see the word remember, it, it, it's remarkable. And there was... No more significant threat to the identity and community of the people than forgetfulness. If you read in Deuteronomy 8, this is a, a critical theme that, that God draws out. Every cycle of apostasy, every affliction, every repentance, every deliverance is centered around Israel not remembering. To forget... Think about this, beloved. To forget was not simply a matter of absent-mindedness for the Israelite. To forget was a mark of covenant unfaithfulness. Remembrance was really a weapon in their warfare as they traveled to the promised land. The theme is no different in the New Testament. So important is the theme of remembrance that one early church father calls the Gospels memories. That's Justin Martyr. He calls the Gospels memorials, memories. And over and over again, it points us to remember, 
The disciples were told to remember the empty tomb. Quote, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? And two verses later it says, and they remembered his words. It was Peter who remembered the words of the Lord and at the rooster's crow, upon remembering, it broke him. We're called to remember who we once were, Ephesians 2. Remember the poor, Galatians 2. Remember each other in our prayers. And to, we're also, our, our lives are to be marked by uh, remembering our obedience to the gospel. As I think of you, I remember your obedience to the gospel. The very writing of Holy Scripture was a work of remembrance by the Holy Spirit upon the writer's minds. Listen to what John, Jesus says in John 14. Jesus tells his apostles that the paraclete will, quote, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And most significantly, and we'll do that here in a moment, our remembrance of the Lord's Supper. You know, you know the command. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood given to you. Drink it in remembrance of me. So there was identity and ethics in an act of remembrance in each of these things. And many more could be brought forth, but it was determinative. Remembrance was determinative for the formation of the community and continuity with the past. And it was determinative of their ethics. It guarded, we could say something like this, it guarded the social norms of the kingdom. We have to remember what God has done. It guarded those social norms. Well, this, this consideration of remembrance brings us to the first point. Remember the apostles' predictions. So Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says the church must remember. Uh, as noted a moment ago, remembrance carries the force of much more than just a, a suggestion here. Uh, it carries with it a, a moral imperative. The word really is in that form. Remember, you must remember, it's a moral imperative. The word is a command. Some of our translations bring out the moral force of this when it says you must or you ought to remember. Oughtness. That's a, that's a word we've lost in our culture, oughtness. You ought not have done that, or you ought to have done that. It's a quality uh, or a state of being morally obligatory. Jude is saying if we forget, we are sinning against the Lord. That's how important our memory is of the things God has done. You must remember. You ought to remember it's vital for your Christian life to remember and crucial for the church's survival against apostate false teachers. This is a, this is a tool, a, a weapon of our warfare that God is giving us to fight against those who would creep in. We have to remember. Forgetting is not simply a matter of absent-mindedness, but covenant unfaithfulness. So he calls us to remember the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a settled fact. The words of the apostles are the rule of faith for us. Uh, they were handpicked by Christ. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the incarnate God. They were sent out into the world, John 17. They were to bear witness of him. Their ministry was attended with miracles, signs, and wonders. 
Think of this. Jesus never wrote a thing. Well, maybe that passage in John 7 when he scribbled in the dirt. That's debatable. Jesus never wrote a thing. But he commissioned these men to write, and their words were in no figurative sense, gospel. Their words were gospel. Their words were, as Matthew 24 says, and our pastor has so uh, ably explained, their words were to survive until the end of the world and believed upon for salvation. Jesus prayed for uh, just as much as this in John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Salvation comes by the word of the apostles, and that's what we have in Holy Scripture. So sure is their testimony that John, the apostle John, could write this in 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. They, being the unbelieving and the false teacher, went out from us us, that is the apostles, they went out from the under the apostles' teaching, but they were not of us. If they had been with us, they would have continued in the doctrine. They would have continued with us, John says. He later says in 1 John 4, we, that is the apostles, are from God. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John had to speak very plainly to divide out from the camp those who would not follow the apostles' teaching. They didn't remember what the apostles said. And so I think it's very plain to say we ignore their words to our peril. One theologian says it this way, no other doctrine can we expect till we come to study divinity in the very face of the Lamb. This is all we have, beloved. This is what's given for life and godliness to us here and now. We have no other doctrine to expect until we come to study divinity in the very face of the Lamb. So we must remember who these men are who are telling us these things. But also we have to remember their predictions. Remember their predictions These are words spoken beforehand to the church. Several times in the New Testament, the apostles warn us by predicting false teachers. Acts 20, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. 1 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy, now the Spirit expressly, or that means clearly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's in the church. And then later John says in 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
So these, these men seem to be laboring under the sense that there was a time of gospel flourishing where these ideas were unchallenged. But still wicked men, through Satan's persuasion, were either beginning to brew in their midst, or they, it, would not, it would not be long before they crept in and attacked the purity of the gospel. We see this in the movement of the New Testament. Think about it this way. Paul writes in the early 50, uh, 50s A.D. that fierce wolves would enter after his departure. He later tells Timothy to be on guard because many in the church would be departing from the faith. And by the time we get to 1 John, written probably 95 A.D., John's last surviving apostle, he's an old man, what does he say? Many false prophets have gone out into the world. The church was infected with false prophets by the close of the apostolic era. And you see that growing as we read Scripture. In our day, think about it, beloved. In our day, the last, given the last 2,000 years of church history, has the Holy Spirit through the apostles been writing or been wrong about this warning? He's not been wrong. The Holy Spirit has been absolutely clear. Church history is chocked full of false prophets. Every age of the church has been plagued with false teachers. The point is this. The church was to use what it already had known in the scriptures to contend for the faith as a weapon of its warfare. They weren't to look for some new word. They were, look, they were to look for something old, something settled, long before anchored in their memories. Remember the apostles' predictions. They prophesied about false teachers infiltrating the church. And the church was to fight with a thorough knowledge of settled, immovable, divine revelation. I think we could say it this way. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. We have no reason to not be on guard. But it also, I think we need to note this in this first verse. Jude calls the church beloved. And we're going we're gonna to unfold this theme later in the letter. He's already unfolded a little bit at the first of the letter. But he calls the church beloved. That's not just some Christianese to try to win uh, Christian votes in some way. He frames his letter with a term of endearment. And at the close of the letter, he reminds them of who they are to him and who they ought to be to one another. So the, this term beloved really kind of serves as two bookends to the letter. They are beloved. They're, that's the very same term that the father uses of the son. This is my beloved, agapitas, my beloved son. And so Jude appeals to them, and it's really a heartfelt appeal. And I, I think about it this way. In war, if you're unsettled about why you're fighting, you'll be reluctant to fight, probably number one. And should you fight, you probably won't fight very effectively. You'll probably fight for all the wrong reasons, and you probably won't fight very long. Robert O'Neill, uh, one of the Navy SEALs commissioned to take out Osama bin Laden, was asked by one of his fellow 
seals. Uh, the seal says, I'm going. I'm going. But if we know we're going to die, why are we going? It's a fair question of a man who has taken up an oath to defend this country and lay down his life. Why are we going? It's a fair question, right? O'Neill responds this way. We're not going after bin Laden for the fame or the money. We're going after Osama bin Laden for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday and then 45 minutes later she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper because that's a better alternative than whatever's going on inside at 2,500 degrees. And whose last gesture of human decency was to hold her skirt down as she fell. She was never supposed to be in the fight, O'Neill says. We're supposed to be in the fight. That's why we're going. That's why we're going. And that's the very same man who put a bullet in Osama bin Laden. G.K. Chesterton would say it this way. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but he loves what's behind him. Love is a motivating factor to contending for the faith. And we're going to see this later in Jude. The true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but he loves what's behind him. We fight for what we love. We do, and sometimes we love the wrong things. But we fight for what we love. And that's why Jude calls them beloved. Do we think of each other the same? If we don't, we're probably going to fight ineffectively, and we won't fight for long. I want to make an observation here about this, this, this passage, and it's this. Uh, churches as well as cultures die when they lose their oughtness to remember. Churches as well as cultures die when they lose that oughtness to remember. Think of it like this. Very loose cultures always seek to redefine history or weaken social norms or lessen the sanctions for those who don't follow them. Isn't that what's happening in our present day? Our, our culture is becoming loose, loosening the social norms, loosening the sanctions. Do we have any cultural consensus on what the flag stands for anymore? Do we really as a culture? Let's just face up to it. We don't. We don't. Is there any remembrance of those things? Probably one of the most significant human factors in our victory as a country in previous wars, and I'm thinking particularly of World War II, was the united vision and memory of what we were fighting for as a country. I'm scared to think of what the outcome would be should we have to unite together again and fight. We don't have a common vision in our culture. But it's also happening in the church. It's no coincidence that the, that the seducers Jude warns us about were those who were against the law, antinomians, those who were uh, taking away the immovable moral oughtness of the community. 
They were men who were seeking to loosen up the culture, weaken the kingdom norms, lessen the sanctions upon those who did not follow them. And as Jude has already stated, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, tight cultures, tight cultures have a deep remembrance of the things that give them identity and ethics. Maybe there's some correlation between the health of a church and the frequency of the Lord's Supper practiced in that place. It's a constant reminder of the gospel. That act of remembrance puts before us every time we gather the Lord Jesus Christ. It tends to break down personal hostilities in a common confession of sin. It guards peace in the bond of love and sets before us, much like the flag in a culture, a shared vision of what actually unites us in the first place. If I start looking out at you and you start looking out at me, though you're all looking at me right now, if we divide up and look at one another, we're going we're gonna to devour one another. We have to have a common vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we take our eyes off of Christ and put them on each other, it is doomsday for us. Tight cultures have a very natural way of recognizing and guarding against foreign ideas. Lodged deep within memory, it acts almost like an involuntary uh, autonomic, we could say, uh, nervous system. Did you know you have a nervous system in your body, deep within your body, that acts in this way? It's a, it controls these internal organs that act largely involuntarily. It regulates body function, heart rate, digestion, respiratory rate, etc., Memory in a culture, memory in a church functions much like this. It prevents uh, disturbances in the vital organs. However, however, tight cultures also have a high tendency to devour their own. When the social norm is here, any slight deviation, and we bite and devour one another to death. If we're not careful, strong norms can lead to imbalanced sanctions and deep and crippling identity crisis in the church. Our infinitely wise president caused this sort of reverberation. I'm just hoping you're paying attention. He caused this sort of reverberation not too long ago by saying this, and I quote, if you have a problem figuring out if you're for me or for Trump, then you ain't black. You could probably tack on the word enough on the end of that statement. What's he saying? He's giving people an identity crisis. And we do the same thing in the church. More on that later. So it's no small thing, and I belabor the point, it's no small thing for Jude to call them to remembrance. Remembrance helped guard their identity, and it promoted the ethics of the kingdom, and it provides a vital 
bulwark against the fight uh, against apostates. It just does. We have to remember those words. But secondly, we have to remember that we are in the last time. We have to remember the apostles' predictions. Memory is vital to us. But we also have to remember that we are in the last time. They said to you, Jude says, they said to you, the apostles said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now this is not a direct quote from any apostle in the New Testament. The closest we can get to a direct quote is 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Uh, Peter says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. It's a very similar phrase, and many have argued that Jude and Peter are playing off of each other here. Jude summarizes in various places uh, in the New Testament this prediction of the apostles in a very condensed statement. In the last time, there will be scoffers. And he saw the harmony of the apostles' message and gives it to us here. And he presents the reason that the church has to remember these words. In the last time, there will be scoffers. But what is meant by the last time? This phrase, the last time, in the last time, is very, very rare in the New Testament. Only really here in two other places in 1 Peter is it used. And though it's a unique phrase, it does have a deeply embedded and interconnected idea we could say kind of a strong undercurrent found in the thought, uh, thought life of the New Testament. A very similar phrase in your Bibles would be in the last days, in the last days. And we can only briefly touch on it here. There is in the Bible a two-age schema. The Bible sees history in two ages, two basic ages, this age and the age to come. This age and the age to come. This age, beginning with the world's creation, ends with the wrapping up of time, space, and history. It's also referred to in Scripture as this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. This age is full of earthly fools. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? God has made them foolishness. We're warned over and over again not to be conformed to this world, i.e. this age. To remember that the apostles in Holy Scripture impart wisdom that is not of this age. An age that's passing away, Paul says, and a wisdom that no ruler of this age has understood. Christ's own resurrection seated him at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. It's a direct quote, Colossians 1, 20 and 21. So the age to come, or in many places in the apostles' writing, the last days, and in Jude's letter here, the last time, is the entire period from the time of Christ's advent to his second return. It's the spiritual reign of Christ in his church. 
His coming to earth was the inauguration of the kingdom age to come, the last days, or as Jude says, the last time. It was the beginning of that last and climactic period of salvation history to be consummated at the Lord's second coming. One writer says, right now, history is pregnant with the age to come. We feel the pulse of scripture. We even see it in the Lord's Supper. We are, we are doing these things and we're saying these things and we're believing these things and confessing these things until he comes again. Sixteen times these phrases are used, this age and the age to come. Taken together, this age and the age to come comprise the entirety of both time and eternity. And so there's an overlap. There's an overlap. The age to come, the last days, the last time, began when the present age has not yet formally ended. Has not yet formally ended. Now, obviously, for Jude's writers, this last time includes the time period in which the readers of Jude's letter lived. It was not some far future reality that Jude was speaking of. And you have to ask yourself the question, why warn the church, why give the church the admonition, the, the data, if they were not in some present danger? Why would he even say those things to begin with? It explains the tension and threats the church face as an age to come people living in a present evil age. So I, I condensed it down to say something like this. We live, we live, Christians live as present spiritual kingdom citizens of an inaugurated yet not consummated kingdom to come. Let me say that again. We as Christians live in a present spiritual kingdom as citizens of an inaugurated yet not consummated kingdom to come. Jude's argumentation from this letter, I think, strongly supports the fact that he viewed the church as living in the last time. This was not 2,500 years later with helicopters and all kinds of tanks of war uh, on the hill of Megiddo. He brings forth a prediction told beforehand as a present help in the church's current situation. If the prediction was a far future time, as some would suggest, what good was the warning to the church then? Why even bring forth the argument? More than that, why hold them accountable to believe these words and act upon them? It's because they were living in the last time. They must remember these things. It was a moral imperative because there was a present threat. Casting the prediction into the far future as something unrelated to his readers, some have failed to hear the very strong and clear note that Jude is striking. The church is in a present crisis and is in need of a present reminder. They, as well as we, are living in the last time. That's where we are right now as a church. We are in the last days. But what are one of the chief marks of the last days? Jude says one of the chief marks is it will be full of scoffers. It will be full of scoffers. 
And this word is a, a very unique word in the New Testament, much like the phrase, the last time. And it runs very deep under the structure of a lot of the New Testament and is tied really uh, tightly to the passion narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. The, gospel use, the Gospels use the word mocking or scoffing to describe the predictions of the passion of Christ. Luke 18.32 says, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked shamefully and shamefully treated and spit upon. Mockery, uh, scoffing, was a, uh, a marked-out form of Christ's sufferings for us. He suffered mockery for you. The passion narrative itself, if you look in Matthew 27, probably most of your Bibles have a title over it that says, Jesus is mocked. And it reads this way. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. And they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Don't you find it interesting that the mockery of the soldiers sounds much like the character description of these false teachers. Hail, king of the Jews, in mockery of his authority and his lordship, sounds a lot like those who deny their only master and lord, Jesus Christ. Christ was mocked for his lordship. A scarlet robe and crown of thorns, a reed once used to scourge him, now given to him as his scepter, bowing before him in laughter, striking him, spitting upon him, all in mockery of his kingship. Luke records in Luke 22 that there were men constantly mocking him and beating him, and finally they blindfolded him. They struck him, and they said, Prophesy, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. It was a marked form of the sufferings of our Lord that he was mocked. He was mocked for you. And there's a deep connection between the mockery of Christ and the scoffing or the mockery of those who have continually plagued the church since his first advent. Think of this. So hated is the lordship of Christ that an entire false religion is built around the idea of an altar Christus, another Christ, mocking the one true king and savior. Roman Catholicism teaches that in no uncertain terms that the priest is another Christ, acting in the person of Christ as the head of his mystical body, the church, and becomes a bridge between man and God. Pope Pius XII writes, and I quote, A holy priest is a savior and another Christ, 
taking the master's place on earth, representing him, clothed with his authority, acting in his name, adorned with his qualifications, exercising his judgments on earth in the tribunal of penance. He's consecrated to exercise the highest functions Christ ever performed on earth to continue the work of salvation. In imitation of his Redeemer, he gives himself mind, heart, affection, strength, time, all for God. He is ever ready to sacrifice his very blood and even life itself to procure the salvation of souls, particularly those of his own flock. How pious of him. And as we like to say in the South, close only counts in horseshoes. And that's just the priest, beloved. Never mind the Pope's claims. Not even going to go there this morning. Don't have time. So hated is the lordship of Christ that an entire false religion is built around the idea of another Jesus. So hated is the lordship of Christ that if you've been in, uh, in the Lord long enough, you remember not too many years ago, there was a controversy that broke out against the very doctrine of salvation itself. It taught Jesus could be your savior without being your Lord. Entire churches swallowed down the poison and soul after soul has lived and died under the delusion that you could ask Jesus into your heart with no real life change, no real obedience, and no holiness of life. Could the Bible be more clear, beloved? Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This idea is a plague upon the truth of the gospel. It undermines repentance and good works as the fruit of justification. And it is a mockery of the kingship of Christ. So hated is the lordship of Christ that the true gospel which sets men free from sin and covetousness to live holy unto God, is mocked and replaced with a message that focuses on lifeless, in Jude's words, twice dead, uprooted messages about financial breakthroughs and get-what-you-give theology. The prosperity gospel is a plague upon the church and a mockery to every saint who has ever suffered flogging, who's ever been in chains, who's ever been imprisoned, who's ever been stoned or sawn in two, who for their entire life wandered in the skins of sheep and goats, who lived in caves and deserts, of whom the world was not worthy. Proving you are saved by showing your financial health and material blessings is an utter mockery of God and his gospel. And it is and it's contrary to the life of Christ himself, the one who actually owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And now, beloved, we have upon the church, as was mentioned in a previous message, an extremely popular pastor who says, and I quote, Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Dear Mr. Stanley, repent. What is a Lord without a law? He's no Lord at all. No Lord at all. 
Beloved, there has always been and there always will be a constant mockery of the lordship of Christ and his people in the last time. It's one of the chief marks of suffering of the present spiritual kingdom and its citizens. If they mocked him, beloved, will they not mock us? Do we expect any less? Do we expect any less? And the text says, finally, these are scoffers who followed their own passions, their own ungodly passions. This is not necessarily the atheist, the one who rejects God. It's the scoffer who thinks God won't judge him and therefore indulges in immorality, in the, in the passions of the flesh. He unhitches himself from the lordship of Christ. He's moved from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the way of a sinner and then finally sitting in the seat of a scoffer. He settled upon his throne. He's rule, he rules by passion. Maybe better to say he's ruled by passion. He's led like a dog on a leash. False teachers, beloved, don't fall into ungodly passion as true believers do. False teachers follow their own ungodly passions. Look at the text. They follow their own ungodly passions. That is their God. Their sermons are experiments of emotion rather than exegesis. Well, thirdly and lastly and very briefly, we need to remember to love the church. Verse 19. It's those, it is these, Jude says, who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. I want to be brief here simply because I want to save this for a future message, and I'll give you the reason why. I think it's that important. Um, I want to ask some serious questions about divisions in the church and really work through this portion of the text thoughtfully and unrushed. I feel like if I rushed it here, I'd just be doing an injustice to you and to the Scripture. But it correlates nicely with the beginning of Jude's letter when he states that he was eager to write to the churches highlighting the things they had in common. So Jude says the central mark of a false teacher is they cause division. They cause division. It's a division motivated by the flesh, he says. And so we have to confess that the Spirit of God in wisdom sometimes moves a Christian out of a church. After all, it's the central charge of the Roman Catholic Church that we are the schismatics. We're the ones who cause division and that they alone are the one true church. I think it's not so much about division that it can be sinful because divisions can include good and necessary soul-saving things, boundaries. But how those divisions come about and what those boundaries are, I think, is what is at stake here. So I want to ask some serious questions next time like this. What is a true church? What is a true church? When is division necessary? When is division sinful? And probably more importantly, and this all goes back to that concept of love and fighting for the truth, how do we stick close to the truth and not fall into either uh, doctrinal minimalism where this frame of mind is kind of like, well, it really doesn't matter. We just all love Jesus. Doctrinal minimalism or... This kind of peevish scrutiny 
this imbalanced suspicion of every little word everybody says and refusing to receive into our hearts someone who doesn't articulate everything precisely the way we do. That's a hard attitude, beloved. If carried far enough, it can make you very cynical, isolated, and angry. So I want to explore the next time, cliffhanger of all cliffhangers, uh, in a little more detail what division means. And I do it with the fear that if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, we will be crippled in the fight for truth and will run the, run the risk of wounding and maybe even killing some of our own. So for now, the Lord's given us enough to think about. I pray he grants us understanding in these things. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, would you please help us as those who love your truth, who love your church, who have been granted to love you, Lord, who would have not loved you any other way than you setting your love in our hearts. Would you please help us to know how to love and fight? Help us to remember the apostles' predictions. Help us to remember that we are in the last time. And help us to remember that we ought to love the church. Help us in Christ's name. Amen.